0: Nice to see ya. The name's Nine-Eye, and you caught me packing for my big trip through time.
1: (laughs) Who are you? Quinn Spoon, city postmaster, at your service.
2: It was the year 1787. In the city of Philadelphia, the Constitutional Convention was in session.
0: meeting has officially
1: come to order, let us all say the pledge. WDW Radio Your Information Station Hello everybody and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World Information Station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 184 for the week of August 22nd, 2010. This week, I'm pleased to be able to share with you an interview with another Disney legend. And this one is special because I had the rare opportunity to speak with one of the original Imagineers and a man who is credited with designing just about everything on wheels for the Disney parks. He is Bob Gurr, whose work on designing the monorail, Omnimover, audio animatronics, Main Street vehicles and countless others earned him the Disney legend status in 2004 I had a chance to sit down with Bob and interview him on stage in front of a crowd of Disney enthusiasts at a recent Disney fan meet and recorded the audio to share with you. It's a fascinating look at the life of a man whose work was instrumental in the development of attractions which continue to delight millions of guests to this day I'll then have a few announcements and then play some more of your voicemails at the end of the show. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. On August 14th, 2010. I had the pleasure of attending and speaking at the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet in Linwood, Washington for the second year in a row. Really enjoyed the meet the first year and was pleased to be able to come back again. I was actually asked by the founder Don Morn if I'd be willing to go on stage and interview a very special guest. And of course I said yes even before I knew who it was, but when I heard that it was Disney legend Bob Gurr, my eyes widened and I smiled like a giddy kid because I would be so honored to have the opportunity to interview an original Imagineer and someone who worked with Walt and literally designed so many of the ride vehicles we still see and use today in Disneyland and in Walt Disney World. And his career spanned so much more than that before he got to the Disney company and then afterwards, I of course wanted to find out about his path towards working for and with Walt because I think his story is important in that it illustrates just one of the many ways Imagineers have come to work for the company. And I think it's fascinating and it's inspiring because it's told in story by his first-hand account of working with Walt and and the genesis of classic attractions and the problem-solving skills that brought us innovative concepts like the Omnimover and the Haunted Mansion. So this segment is actually going to be in two parts because Bob started off by showing a video that he had brought with him of an interview that he gave many years ago for Disney's cast member television show. And I normally wouldn't play something like that, but because they had asked so many of the specific and important questions that I had intended to cover in my interview, I thought it was something that you should hear first before we play my interview segment. I'm then going to go into my conversation with Bob and then a little bit of Q&A from the audience. Now, unfortunately, I was so very limited by time, and it's difficult because how do you encapsulate a lifetime of work at Disney and beyond into under an hour? But I did have a lot of fun with Bob, and you see we play back and forth a little bit, but it really was a, a true privilege to speak with him and to be able to share that discussion with the attendees at the meet as well as with you so of course i have to t- quickly say thank you again to don morin the founder of the pacific northwest mouse meet and of course to bob Gurr. and before we get into the interviews in the segments i have to share a very quick personal story with you i had the chance to meet bob the night before the meet at dinner and he was so gracious and so captivating in the stories that he was telling to the table and then the next morning, I had an opportunity to sit with him one-on-one the morning of the meet to talk with him a little bit about what we were going to do in the interview. So at the meet, Don had arranged for real Dole whips to be served. He brought in a machine, brought in the real, real Dole whip mix. And that morning, while I was sitting in a corner talking to Bob, a very nice volunteer came over and brought Bob and I a cup of Dole whip each before the meet started. So here I am, sitting with Bob Gurr, and eating a Dole Whip. Does it get any better than that? It did, because Bob and I were chatting, and he was talking about how he walks around, and has always walked around the Disneyland parks, but really doesn't snack as he's going around. And he would take friends over to the Tiki Room in Disneyland, and sort of walk by the Dole Whip stand out front, and he proceeds to tell me that he never had a Dole Whip. And he's going on with the story, but I had to stop him for a second. I was like, wait a minute. So I'm sitting here talking to a Disney legend, the an original imagineer, Mr. Monorail, OmniMover, Autopia guy, Bob Gurr, and I'm sharing your very first Dole Whip ever. Yes, so I did ask somebody to come over and grab a photo photo. It was a total geek out fanboy moment. I really am a fan and a kid at heart first. So thank you again to Bob Gurr for sharing that with me and the nice woman who brought it over. And, of course, for for joining me on stage for the interview. So, without further ado or delay, here is first Bob's interview with Disney Cast Member TV from a video that he brought along with him. And then we'll move on right from there into my interview with Bob. Enjoy.
3: Hi, it's Mike with Cast TV, and welcome to A Walk Around the Park. Today, you can see I'm right in front of Autopia. And actually, we're doing a little variation on our theme on the show. Instead of a walk around the park, we're going to take a ride around the park because today we're talking about all the vehicles uh, here at Disneyland, whether it's Autopia, Monorail, Main Street vehicles, things like that. And the reason why we're talking about that today is because we have here Bob Gurr, the man who was key in creating all these vehicles, Autopia, Monorail, and we're going to take a ride around on each one of these. So, Bob, thanks for joining us. And first of all, I wanted to start here at Autopia because... This is where your Disney career started as far as working on Toby. Tell me about how you got involved with this attraction.
0: Well, when Disneyland was being designed, Walt actually was running out of money, and they had this little uh, chassis of a little vehicle running around the back lot of the studio, which I heard about, but they needed a body design, and they went down to the Art Center College to see if they could get the students to do a body design for free. I actually met a guy down there who told me about this job, had me uh, go out to the studio, and yes, it was a little body they needed designed. design. So I started to design the car, and then Walt assumed that since I did, did body design, I also did mechanical design, but I was never trained as a mechanical engineer. I was just interested in cars. I didn't have the courage to tell Walt, well, I'm not an engineer. I don't design cars. Uh, everybody was in the same boat in those days. Walt had you do a job and you had to just go figure it out. So I just kept my mouth shut and kept drawing, and we built 40 cars, brought them down here, opening day, we had a tremendous opening day. We had like three times the amount of people that should have been here. We had all of the famous invited guests. They all wanted to ride Autopia. Frank Sinatra.
2: Hello, Franco. Who's driving? Frankie it's My Junior. son, yeah. Don't hit this gotta, man. Gotta, Sammy
0: Davis.
2: Oh! Look who hit who? Sammy Davis Jr.
0: Hello, Sammy. At the end of the opening day some of the cars were already broken and by the end of the first week we were down to just two cars running out of all the cars but the, the fatal thing was we never had enough time to design and test vehicles before we put them into service you know to build 40 vehicles this meant if i made a design mistake for one car i made it for 40 cars and then of course over the years we went through the mark one the mark two the three the four the five the six and the seven until uh, we got a car in 1968 design was called at the mark 7. Now oddly enough today these new cars were in service in the year 2000. If you lifted the body off and looked in there, the original 1968 Mark 7 chassis is essentially in there, unchanged.
3: Yes so some it, of the original or some of those cars from 68 exist in these vehicles today. Yes, it
0: has a newer type engine, uh, better electrical and fuel system. A little improvement in the bumpers, but underneath the basic guts of that car, it worked so well. We finally figured out, by 1968, how you make a car that literally will last forever in this uh, uh, bump and crash service.
3: Where did, they, where did the interest in cars come from, Bob? How did you get involved I mean, in, involved in cars?
0: Well, I was always a car freak from the time I was five years old. It was cars and airplanes and airplanes and cars. So I was very observant about cars all the time. I used to go to racetracks. I would sometimes would be the uh, official at some of the sports car races. I read all the sports car magazines. Of course, I was a car designer uh, at age 20 at the Ford Motor Company in Detroit. So in other words, all this was based upon, uh, you know, literally lifelong interest and in, in knowledge in cars.
3: So you came on in 1954, which meant you basically had about a year to get all these cars ready for opening day in 55. Tell me about what you were feeling then when you knew you had about a year to do that.
0: Well, we had a lot less than the year because I started on the job in October of 1954. Disneyland is going to open in July 17, 1955. That's like six months plus a couple of extra months. Uh, I didn't have any thought about anything beyond the fact that the whole idea of a Disneyland is crazy to begin with. All the people at the studio were working at either studio or, in those days, wet enterprises. We were all in the same boat. Walt was having us do all these crazy things all at once. Uh, we had to figure out our own ways to do this. I don't think we worried about, you know, whether time was short. We just knew there was an opening day, and every day we made progress towards doing it.
3: This attraction, which has been here since 1955, wasn't the only Autopia in the park's history. I I know that the, for those, you know, a few years back, know that we had a Fantasyland Autopia. There was two of them. But even before that, we had... Junior Autopia, is that right? And Midget Autopia. So it, we had three or four at one time. What, was that Walt's idea? Was he just that fascinated with cars? Or why did we have so many Autopias at that time?
0: Well, it turned out that the minute you have a car ride like Autopia, everybody wants to ride it, which means to Walt, we have to have much bigger capacity. Uh, it was very easy to add uh, Midget Autopia because that's an electric car. It was a stock car built by Aero Development, so that was very easy to implement because that vehicle was already in production. And, of course, uh, over by uh, where the motorboat um, later became and where the monorail eventually went, we had the, uh, the little uh, junior Autopia. And we set that one up where we had, like, little uh, jump seats and we had little uh, extensions on the pedals. So, in other words, deliberately some of the little kids could go over there. Then, of course, you know, and by 1959 we expanded it. Uh, we added uh, the Tomorrowland uh, the Autopia Station over by the Matterhorn, in addition to the Tomorrowland Station, back here in the original location. So for a while there, we just had Autopias running all over the place.
3: Now, an attraction I want to talk to you about that you're involved in, because you mentioned you know you had a fascination with, with cars and, and planes. Uh, an attraction here that flew, if you will, that's no longer here in Tomorrowland, were the Flying Saucers. And you were involved in that, too. So tell me about whose idea was that? Did, did, who, who even thought of that idea, and, and how did you execute it?
0: Aero development up north, uh, Carl Bacon and Ed Morgan came up with this idea of a very tricky valve that would be in a deck. That, that valve could be controlled uh, up and down, and it would take advantage of the pressure below the deck, and the pressure would come through the valve into the bottom of the car. This meant the car only had to be like a giant hubcap, so to speak, sitting on the deck and then the top of it would looked like a flying saucer This was the easiest car I ever designed because it had no moving parts The ride was very tricky to drive and you had to ride that ride by watch everybody for a while Then when you got on it, your time was limited right. If you leaned too far in any direction the skirt would dig in and would slow it down If you didn't do anything, it just sort of sat there if you were too heavy, it would really sit there, and if you were too light, it would start to bounce. It takes four or five times to go back to the end of the line until you get that ride figured out. That's the one that people ask for more than anything else. When's a flying saucer coming back? That was the coolest thing to try to learn how to run.
3: Well, someday maybe they'll figure that out and they can bring it back, because I never got to ride it. I've only seen footage of it, and I'd love to go on that. But now... I'd like to take you up to the monorail, so let's check that out. All right. Right. Off
0: we go to the monorail. All right.
3: All right. Now we're aboard the monorail above Disneyland Park right now. And uh, this was such a unique attraction when it, it joined the park in 59. Whose idea was it? Who saw this? Because this was the first operating monorail, as I understand, in the Western Hemisphere. Who saw it? Whose idea was it?
0: If you go back and look at the original drawings of uh, Disneyland, particularly the ones that Herb uh, Ryman did, and also uh, several other drawings that are on display in various places, there was always a monorail in Tomorrowland. But monorails in those days, the only ones that people knew about were the ones that were hanging type that would hang from an overhead beam, like the Wuppertal train and the uh, French saffage system. In 1958, uh, Walt was driving in Germany with his wife, Lily, and they were driving down the street and all of a sudden, a, a monorail went right across the road, right in front of him, in between these trees. So he stopped, went on to find out where the train went, didn't speak German. They sent him back across the street, and he introduced himself to the Alweg company. He found monorail. Well, in a very rapid order, in a matter of just like two months or so, uh, Disney and Alwig made a deal that they would cooperate together, and they would design and build something. But now Walt was finally going to have his monorail. But uh, Roger Broglie and myself were sent over there uh, with our preliminary drawings of what a monorail could be. Because this job moves so absolutely fast that I was given like, about three weeks to come up with a basic design, which, body style-wise, was very much like the little view liner that we did in 1957. The monorail was a whole new, radical, big, heavy, fast, way up in the air type of machine. And again, not being a trained engineer, uh, how are we gonna do this? But I knew a lot of different components that we could get a hold of and combine them in a certain manner. Let's say the functioning parts, and then build our own frame, build our own body, not unlike uh, the Omnibus where you would have a chassis and build your own body on top of it, not unlike the uh, Main Street vehicles where you would uh, build a whole vehicle from scratch, out of materials and store-bought parts. Mm -hmm. Um, In that way, the monorail is not as complicated as you'd think to come up with a monorail in it in uh, much less than a year.
3: One of the features of the early monorails that are no longer part of the newer monorails was the bubble. And I've always thought, was that, was that your idea for, for the bubble to give it a futuristic look? Was that the way that the monorail you saw in Germany? How did that work?
0: Well, the train in Germany was kind of an industrial-looking uh, vehicle, not very handsome. But the minute Walt asked me to, to design this, it only took about 15 minutes one day to figure out how do you make something really streamlined, to cover up something that's basically a box with a slot in the bottom sitting on a stick, which is what a monorail really is. And I remember the old Buck Rogers uh, rocket uh, from the uh, cartoons back in the 30s. At the same time, I, I liked airplanes, and the Boeing B-47 bomber uh, had a long, beautiful, tapered fuselage, and it had a big a bubble canopy on the top. And these two, uh, two elements came uh, so logically... Uh, Because it was very obvious in talking to Walt about how you configure a a train like that that he really didn't want anybody uh, sitting in the front of the vehicle to drive it. Because, you know, like streetcars, you had the driver sit in the front. Of course, when I went to school, I always rode in the front so I could watch. But Walt made a comment to me one day. He said, Bob, I don't want anybody to look down the greasy neck of a motorman. And I kind of remember that comment. And it was like, oh, how logical. The driver doesn't sit in the front of the vehicle like most vehicles. Why don't we just put the driver back up on the top someplace out of the way, ergo the the bubble canopy on the top.
3: Now, the great story that is legendary actually is is part of opening day for for the monorail back in 1959 when then Vice President Nixon came to be part of the opening festivities and I understand you took him for a ride on the monorail that maybe didn't go the way it should have?
0: (laughs) Well the monorail would only run one lap around by itself without breaking down the night before. I parked it in the station so the TV people could get their 90-minute program, get their shot, and then go out of, uh, out of the way. But in the morning, here comes Art, uh, Linklater, Walt, Nixon, the wife, the kids, Secret Service, and they all want to go for a ride. So I give them a ride. We go around by the sub-lagoon, and it's obvious that Nixon sees all the Secret Services on the platform, which means none of them are on the train, which means I just kidnapped the Vice President of the United <laughs> States. And then we came around to go again, and the Secret Service was trying to run to get to the train, but I drove through the station. They're trying to get on it. The end result was I drove around, gave him another lap around, came back to the station, we all got off. Nixon walked down to the bottom of the platform, looked back up on all the Secret Service's sitting in the train, and they're still not guarding him. So Nixon had a lot of uh, uh, very uh, profane comments to do with... uh, Expertise of the palace guard uh, in those days.
3: Great, well, I think we reached the station, so let's head to Main Street. All right, here we go. All right. (laughs) So now we're in what I kind of consider the iconic vehicle of Main Street, the omnibus. If you could tell me how this came about, what the inspiration for the design of a double decker bus for Main Street is.
0: Well, as you know, Walt always uh, decided what we're going to have at Disneyland. One day, he came into my office, and he slapped his legs and said, Bobby, you know, there's something we haven't got. We don't have a double-deck omnibus on uh, Main Street. And I says, yeah, my father used to drive them on Sunset Boulevard in the 1920s, and I know where there's a, an American uh, double-deck bus for dimensions. Walt said, just a minute, I'll be right back. And he goes up to his office, comes back, and he hands me this little dinky toy of uh, English mo- uh, omnibus. And a little while later, I get a phone call from the accounting department. Bob, Walt, was just here. The accounting number for the uh, Omnibus project is. So even if it's Walt's Park, he still had to go to accounting to, to get a number to get this job started. Like the uh, 03 cars on Main Street, I was able to uh, buy a complete vehicle chassis, which had all the powertrain in it, had all the running gear, so I only had to design the body, which was now going to be quite easy. This vehicle was uh, a delight to design uh, I even drove it down to Hollywood Boulevard once, mm-hmm. uh, getting a, a motor vehicle permit because I wanted to drive it to Disneyland. Uh-huh. So the uh, bus number one, I did deliver it to Disneyland on a cold, foggy morning. So you drove
3: this well, down drove the streets it. of that California. Was, that was before to get we here.
0: before we had a windshield on a cold, foggy morning on the Santa Ana Freeway. Uh-huh. You know how frozen <laughs> I was. We have windshield on number two, and then we added another windshield. Uh, but the bus from the get go was. Just one of those charming-looking uh, buses. The reason why it's charming is we try to compress the height of the vehicle by making the top seats face outward, mm-hmm. bottom seats face inward. That way we compress the headroom just a little bit so that the vehicle is in scale with it's all the buildings on Main Street. Okay,
3: so this is a scale bus. It's not a full-scale bus. No,
0: it's a, it's a scale bus. You have to be very careful how you uh, do that so the proportions look right as it's going down uh, Main Street. So it fits in with all the uh, architecture, but you can still put full-size people in it.
3: All right, Bob. So we're on Main Street here riding what's called the 03 car, This is called the
0: 03 car. We have two of them. Uh, The original one is red, and the (laughs) second (laughs) one, uh, built in 1957, uh, was uh, yellow. But it's gold right now because of the 50th anniversary.
3: Now, um... What was the inspiration for, for the 03 cars? Obviously, that refers to 1903 because this is turn-of-the-century Main Street.
0: Well, before uh, we uh-huh. built Disneyland, Walt had the idea that we were going to have antique cars on Main Street. We went out and took a look at uh, various antique cars with the idea that they could people could sell it to us and restore them. And I thought, that that's a dumb idea because we're going to have to have modern, reliable, uh, brand-new cars. So it was very easy for me, being an ex-car stylist, that I could simply... Um, take the design of, say, like 1903, and using modern parts, we could make a, an old car. But that would mean that this car could literally run forever, always refurbishing uh, the original uh, parts in it.
3: Now, as far as the look, though, because you've mentioned all the different parts you've had to use, was this modeled or styled after a, certain, a particular car from that period to yeah. look like?
0: Yes, I did the original red car. As a, uh, it was a much shorter car than this, and it had a rear entrance, what's called a rear-entrance mm-hmm. uh, uh authentic, but not practical. Mm-hmm. And the front end is patterned after a, a Renault of that same period, okay. because French cars were kind of cute looking. They had that little kind of main street charm to it. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we, after we ah, built ah, the yellow ah. car, which was a longer car, which was easier to load, uh, we modified the red car, chopped it up, stretched out, and it looked just like the... Uh, this car which was 1957 where the red car was
3: 1956 now another vehicle that we only see on special occasions and we saw walt in you know in old footage of, of whenever we see walt in a car uh was what you call an electric runabout that had a not a steering wheel but a stick That's a to tiller. the car that
0: was a tiller a tell right about, hand drive tell me uh, about that tiller. car walt used to walk around his park and he walked faster than a lot of his guests mm-hmm. and if he'd slow down to accommodate the guests and everybody stopped wanting an autograph, and that made it very difficult. So he came to me one day, and he says, how come we can't have a, a cute little electric car? Because I could be in the car, people wouldn't necessarily get at me, but they would see me, and then I wouldn't wear my guests out, because they'd go, go for a ride with me. Mm-hmm. So that was the idea, to have a vehicle that was really cute, had this little Surrey top, looked like a, an Oldsmobile.
3: Mm-hmm. Well just
0: loved that car, because... If you look around a lot of photos uh, today, you'll see Walt's got a big smile on his face and he's uh, taking all kinds of dignitaries uh, for a ride in that car. Fire!
3: Fire! Fire! Well, that, that, sound, that sound can only mean that we're on the fire you hear engine. That? And this, I understand, you consider your favorite.
0: This is my all time favorite because. In the same way that Walt would come to your office and have you start to design something, he came over to my office one day and he slapped his knee and uh, asked about the omnibus. I remembered that, so one day he came in my office in 1958 and I said, "I slapped my knee." And I said, "Walt, do you know there's something we don't have on Main Street? We don't have a fire engine. Fire engines are absolute total fun, and with all the details are very dramatic uh, vehicles. So I patterned this car." After the uh, original two O3 cars, same engine, same transmission, same clutch, same powertrain, everything exactly the same as the O3 cars, so there's basically nothing to invent. But all the little fire engine details, all the trim, all the parts, uh, different uh, radiator shell on the front, bigger headlights, big spotlight. I even had a wind-up uh, uh, siren on the front that we finally wore out. Ward Kimball gave that to me. And, uh, incidentally, I did drive this car down from the studio all the way down to Disneyland. Half, did, you, did you drive every vehicle down here? No, but I, <laughs> I drove down the bus with the fire engine. I got all the way down on a day where I got all the way to Norwalk with a 12-horsepower, two-cylinder engine before I had to get off the freeway. And then you have to kind of zig and zag to get the rest of the way down here. And if I came up this corner. There's this little kid standing there. And I gave him wind up the siren, giving him all oh, this... Burns looked so little. This little kid looked at me and as I went around the corner he goes Mister, by the time you get there we'll it will burned down. <laughs> this kid gave me the best laugh and it was just like the, the perfect setting for this car. But anyway if you look back at a lot of photographs you'll find out that Walt really loved driving this car. Whenever we had some important heads of state mm. Why, he, he put him in the fire engine because he loved to drive the fire engine. Oh. So, in other words, you know, he, he liked steam trains, liked to drive that stuff. Ward Kimball was a fire engine freak. And I was kind of jealous of those guys. And I, I had my opportunity there to slap my knee and, and say, I want to have something in the park. So, this was my ride. But I was thrilled to death knowing that Walt always chose everything, but he chose everything except this one. I got away with something that uh, most people don't get away oh, yeah. with. What's going to be in Disneyland? I am just thrilled to death, like almost 50 years after we built these vehicles, right. that I, I can still come to a Disneyland and, and get on Main Street, and I can go go for a ride in a fire engine. Not just a fire engine. I get to go for a ride in mind's fire engine. Right. So I like these cars <laughs> here because uh, they're authentic looking. They never change. They never go out of style. And they always seem to run. And Disneyland Maintenance Department takes care of these cars. Again, like... Um, the other vehicles i want to come back 50 years and uh and take this ride well the engine again.
3: i'll be with you hopefully know, right. well bob it's been a real thrill i can't tell you to uh we, we we call this segment a walk around the park but you've taken us on a ride around the park and thank you for all that you've done uh for the last 50 years for all these wonderful vehicles on main street and tomorrowland and everything you've, else you've done you know, throughout the park and the other parks around here so just thank you so much for joining us and um uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I had a great time, and we'll see you next time on CAST TV. Thanks.
4: Folks, I'm very pleased to welcome to the stage uh, an interviewer, award winning podcaster, author, editor. If you don't listen to WDW Radio, go download it now. Uh, Mr. Lou Mongello. Come on up, Lou. And yes, he's not here just in the video. He's here live, 40-year Imagineer and Disney legend, Mr. Bob Gurr. Where are
1: you going to sit?
0: Anywhere you like.
1: You're the legend. I'll sit wherever you don't want to sit. I have to first say, I am a. Uh, no, no, no. no. Uh oh. This is sponsored by Fiji Water. What? You remember
0: Wally Bogue down at Disneyland? Pepsi Cola, Fiji Water, drink it by the gallon. <laughs> Good work, Don. He, you know, uh, he sells this stuff, uh, <laughs> Fiji Water, and I thought, who would move water halfway across the planet just to sell it in Seattle that's what he does besides mouse meat I was
1: going to say I have to say first and foremost that it's truly such an honor to be sitting up here with you because I am an enthusiast first and so appreciative of the work that you've done stop
0: talking and give me your first question
1: well, you really answered everything in the video, so I'm done. I have, no, I have nothing. Uh, I actually want to go back a second. I mean, obviously, we want to hear about some of the other things that you didn't touch on about your work in Disney. But I think so often, and I don't know why they ask me, certainly they ask you, people say, oh, you know, I want to be an Imagineer, or my kid wants to be an Imagineer. What is the way to do it? And I think that your story is important because there is no formula, there is no method. And I want you to just touch on quickly about... Your beginnings in high school You certainly didn't go to high school saying You know, I want to be an Imagineer someday You took high school drafting lessons And then you eventually worked towards uh, Being in the auto industry And then I think you have a great story About when you started your own company And the two things that you brought with you When you initially started
0: The two things I brought with me When I initially started Your rubber stamp And your voice book Oh, yes. I had a JCPenney invoice book, you know, cost about a dollar, and a little rubber stamp, and I'm, I'm in business. It was called R.H. Gerr Industrial Design. Uh, life was very simple in those days. You just thought, oh, I could design something. Oh, yeah, that's all you need. And then you could um, write out invoices. And oddly enough, after uh, Walt Disney had hired me, for the first uh, month or two, uh, I was hired as R.H. Gurr Industrial Design, and I would uh, take my little rubber stamp, stamp it on, and I'd write, write down what I did for the week and uh, what the price was and walk it over to the accounting department. And uh, within an hour or two, I had a check. That's, that's how fast Disney uh, did in those days. Now they keep you on hold for 46 days before they, before they, <laughs> before they uh, pay you. Um, but, yes, I didn't have any training because how do you train for a park that doesn't exist? Uh, now, you've got to remember, everybody that Walt was collecting in those days was uh, in the same boat uh, because they had never been trained for anything like that. But Walt had the ability to understand uh, the potential of what people uh, might be able to do, even though they had never done it. So that's kind of the clue. That's, uh, that's a common thread that if you talk to anybody that worked for Walt in those days, they would always say the same thing. So in, in one way, it didn't do any good to be trained for anything and I think that is still the case today because uh, a lot of times we'll go to a meet just like this and uh, a parent will bring their little kid up and says I want to be an imaginary, what do I do? So I always have to kind of explain some of the s- simple things in a in a way that to pr- you prepare yourself by being prepared for nothing specific and that basically means is you're going to be curious every every hour of your day about everything, especially things you don't know anything about. And I, that sounds dumb and sounds simple, but that that really is the uh, the essence of the people that I work with, and saw how they uh, would work and respond to uh, Walt Disney. That uh, that was uh, very easy in those days because we had no internet, no iPods, no iPads. None of that stuff, which meant you had to learn just by ordinary methods of walking around, looking at things, talking to people, going to special events, uh, going out to automobile races, crawling under cars, doing all kinds of stuff, watching airplanes, uh, looking at art, figuring out uh, how science works. I mean, just, it was endless. Now, today, you look around the room here, anybody who's 10, 12 years old, You've got the internet. You've got all this stuff that you can now uh, go even faster than I was able to do. So this curiosity, being driven by curiosity, that was something Walt, Walt always told people. He says my curiosity absolutely never stops. So that was his method, if you want to say there was a method, and that's sort of what uh, I observed with people. Now again, that's sort of like a non-specific answer, but stop and think about it a minute. Uh, if you wasted all your time in high school and you just party all the time and uh, and then you turn into an adult and you party all the time you haven't learned anything and you blew all those years of uh, hours that, that you could have so the point is that everything that pops into your mind and everything that you read in the news or some event or something like that start digging into it because it will lead to different paths of, of what Uh, information that you may never use, but you also, you might use it sometime. I had a a friend who ran a travel group, and he always would introduce me. He says, oh, this is Bob Gurr. He has a a font of useless information. Uh, I thought, yeah, he's right, because I I have collected all this stuff, and uh, uh, I know what some of it was used for, you know, because it's like, uh, I draw cars, but I don't do engineering. Well, I did after a while. And then, you know, you design a monorail, and pretty soon you design a lot of stuff. And then pretty soon it leads to I designed like flying saucers for the uh, Olympic ceremonies. I did lighting for Michael Jackson. I wound up sinking a ship in Las Vegas. You know, anytime somebody had a crazy idea, it really turned out I never got good at anything because I didn't do anything over. And everything somebody wanted doesn't, didn't exist. Big deal. How are you going to train for that? So we're back to curiosity, being permanently curious. That's a long answer, but I hope that's the answer.
1: That is, it's a great answer. You're right, and and you know, you said you went to a position that didn't exist. I mean, didn't Walt even say, "Well, Bob, what do you want to be called? What what? Give yourself a title," and you gave yourself director of special vehicle creation.
0: Oh yeah, they uh, in those days they like to have people always have a business card to figure out who you are, and uh, I'd never been asked for a business card. Well, uh, give us something. I thought, oh. Director of Special Vehicle Development. Oh. <laughs> you
1: know, you, you mentioned something about dealing with Walt. And let me go, let me first ask you something, and then I want to talk to you about your first meeting with Walt. It seems that what Walt, part of what he did was he dreamt it, and he had incredibly creative and intelligent people around him to execute and to do it and to do his dreams. And like you and he didn't care what, you, what your job was or what you thought you knew how to do. Walt was going to tag you to do a special assignment. He did it with you. He did it with so many people in the creation of Disneyland who were animators and who were artists, and now all of a sudden they were designing theme park attractions, which nobody had ever done before. Do you think, and I, I think the is probably know, that that's something that can happen anymore, that people can be hired and that the company can be driven like that where a person can say, well, I'm hiring you as an animator, but now all of a sudden... Or was that something unique to Walt that he was able to see and bring out the best in all the people around him?
0: I think you're completely right on that because uh, if I looked at the characteristics of uh, Walt and then I look at the characteristics of other uh, interesting people that I worked for, they had a little bit of Walt but not the Walt to the, de- to the degree that he did, which was this sort of a uh, sixth sense of uh, what a person might be able to do. And I'm always amazed to listen to some of my other uh, legendary Imagineer friends uh, who get a similar question, and they'll give some little instance uh, that was personal to them where uh, it was exactly the same technique because Walt would uh, look at somebody and say, um, uh, Bobby, I want you to... uh, And then he'd start in on something, and I'd I'd say, yeah, but I haven't ever uh, done one of those. And then Walt would just get up and he'd walk off and he says, well, it's time you start. (laughs) And uh, you have nobody to talk to. Um, He walked away. Uh, But it turns out you look around at your uh, coworkers and Walt just did that to them too. So then we all look at each other, well, what are we going to do? How how are we going to figure this stuff out? Over the years, I finally figured out the methodology that we automatically use, but it was not defined at that time. So sometimes I will explain this uh, in in the following manner to uh, the people, if you bear with me here. Let's say that uh, I give you an assignment, and you don't know anything about it. Well, you know something about it, and I'll show you why. Uh, I'm going to hand you a great big uh, gray square, a piece of cardboard, and when you're done, it's going to be all a bunch of little black and white squares, which means specific facts. But you say, I only, I only got gray. Well, just a minute. The subject I just gave you, how much do you know about it? Well, I know a little bit of this. I know a little bit of this. I know a little bit of that. Okay, start making some black and white somewhere. It's just anywhere. Start anywhere. Ah, you've got to connect a few of these black and white areas. Well... Why don't you go ask somebody? They might know something about it. They might know also something about it. You could go read something. You could go on the Internet and dig up something. Oh, I've been curious all my life. I already know a lot of this stuff. Uh, I didn't know it applied to the job you just gave me. And on and on and on. And guess what? I find most people, if they use that methodology, whether it's in the legal trade or making clothes or designing cars or whatever, designing Disneyland, um, they're amazed. They say, oh, I figured it out. I took a little help, you know. I had to snoop around a lot. But that's the general principle which you can apply to anything, which means you already have the potential to do a lot more than you ever thought you could. And clearly he had the faith <clears throat>
1: excuse me, and the trust in all of you to do that, to say, there you go, here's your Disneyland car, go, go design it for me. And it wasn't just, well, this, okay, Bob, this is your one assignment. He says, oh, you're going to do the Main Street vehicles and you're going to do the Matterhorn bobsleds and, oh, by the way, I need Autopia cars... And you were tasked with almost not just one thing, but many, many things at the same time. And I assume that was the same for everybody who was an Imagineering at the time.
0: Oh, Walt always gave out multiple jobs. Uh, It it sounds crazy now when you tell somebody that uh, you worked on four things at one time. uh, Where nowadays, most people work on one thing because... Uh, While they work on it, they got an eight hour day. For four hours you work and the other four you have meetings, you have to answer coordinators, project managers, uh, budgets, all that kind of stuff. Uh, So we got more done because we didn't do any any of that kind of stuff. But you automatically go uh, very, very fast uh, doing these projects when you find it's a norm to do four things. Like uh, spring of 58, Walt says, oh, we're going to do a submarine. Well, get going on the submarine. So I go far enough along in the submarine that we got a lot of it uh, figured out. And it says, oh, by the way, the current Autopia car really is giving a lot of trouble. Design another one. So, okay, I start working on the Mark V Autopia car. And then um, here comes uh, the monorail. Oh, well, we're going to get started on the monorail. Well, but just before you do that, uh, you need to finish the track for the Matterhorn. Because uh, aero Developments waiting for the uh, track course that you're, that you're working on. So uh, that's the way it goes. And then finally I could get on one job after uh, only like two or three months before the monorail opened. I could finally go full time on the monorail. But I had to work through all those other jobs all in, all in parallel. And I find everybody else is doing the same thing.
1: And again, you know, you're known so much for the monorail and the Autopia and so the other things. But, you know, you were, you're often referred to as the guys. If it has wheels, chances are Bob Gurr designed it. And that not only holds true for things with wheels, but a lot of the other vehicles in the parks and Disneyland and in Walt Disney World that many of us are, uh, are classics and have an affection to. And one of them would be the Omnimover system, a.k.a. that's Doom Buggies to you and me, kids. Tell us a little bit about the evolution of the Omnimover system.
0: After the uh, New York World's Fair 64-65, there was uh, different ways that you could uh, tell stories uh, through riding on a mechanical conveyance. And some of you might remember the uh, AT&T exhibit, which had a little vehicle that kind of went sideways. Some of you might remember the General Motors ride, which was, it was just like a, a moving sidewalk full of chairs. You know, It wasn't very elegant, but, boy, the people were getting sucked up through that ride uh, so fast. I was quite impressed with it, so I looked up the engineer that designed it ask a few questions, and I could see that, oh, that's pretty simple to do, that's, uh, not, not much to that one there, and then I was sitting in uh, John Hench's office, you remember uh, John Hench who you know, worked with Marty Sklar, was the head of all the design, and we were just sitting there joshing around how to tell stories, and um I said, yeah, well, yeah, we could use a conveyance because uh, if it's uh, continuous speed, uh, that'll work very well, and then... Uh, For example, um, instead of just sitting in something riding forward like a chair, John had a a candied apple on a stick sitting on his desk, and I just sort of picked it up, and, and I says, yeah, we could have a chair... And um, we could just twirl it around like that, stick them on a little chassis, and uh, the, while the chassis went along, uh, this uh, chair could direct you uh, to look at scenes in, in any uh, manner that you wanted. We could go up a hill, downhill, tip the tip the body forwards, backwards, whatever. It'd be a very easy way to tell stories, but we would move people at a very, very uh, uh, fast rate. Uh, at the same time, the art directors, if they if they like this idea, they'll suddenly find out. When you segue from one scene to another, uh, you can turn uh, the people to uh, more, uh, envelop them into the scene a lot better. And, of course, you know, immediately uh, uh, Monsanto had this uh, idea about uh, going into the little microscope, and you're going to shrink and everything. This was a really slick way to do it. Of course, then we immediately solved the problem of the the, uh, walk-through Haunted Mansion project, which had been going on for years. And all of a sudden, like, oh, we can go make the Haunted Mansion a ride-through, and it'll really work now. So that's all it was. It was just a passing conversation uh, with a little bit of imagination and a twirl of candied apple. There's nothing to it. Yeah.
1: And it's, it was so simple but so revolutionary because now you weren't leaving it up to the guests to sort of look around and find what you wanted. You became directors, you know, sort of bringing them scene by scene and having them focus on what you wanted them to see. Uh, One of the stories that I think is fascinating is the creation of the Matterhorn bobsleds. Uh, Again, it's still one of the most popular rides in Disneyland. And again, Walt must have known something and and had faith in you because he gives the assignment of creating the roller coaster to the guy that's afraid of roller coasters. (laughs)
0: Well, yeah, that job did to get started because uh, Walt uh, had been over in Europe. Uh, and they were, I think he are doing the Third Man on the Mountain uh, movie. And, of course, he saw the Matterhorn, and then he saw bobsleds. And they, so he got an idea, ooh, people could ride bobsleds in a mountain in Disneyland. And uh, showed me pictures of this little bobsled. And so we'll get started on a, a design. Uh, and we're going to have aero development up north uh, eventually build this thing and uh, get started on uh, how a track might work. So I was working on... Uh, uh, a steel track, a uh, steel angle, which we found is never going to work. Arrow came up with the idea of bent pipe because bent pipe, you could do it really fast. We accidentally invented the first steel pipe coaster. We were just trying to solve a production problem, you know, not inventing anything, but we did. Um, then in the uh, case of uh, putting the track inside the mountain, you know, I remember roller coasters are a, a pile of wood out in space so you can make, any, make it do anything you want. Walt says, well, uh, we want to track inside a mountain. Fred Jurger, the model builder, is building the model of the uh, Matterhorn. And, uh, oh, yes, the Skyway is going to go right through it. And, oh, yes, put two tracks in there. <laughs> well, it was quite obvious that uh, this had to be drawn by hand. Because, remember, there's, there's no computers. There are no hand calculators in, in uh, the spring of 1958. So uh, I figure out how to do, uh, on my drafting board, a planned view of the track, which I just do with pencil and compass, and then a big, long strip of paper on the bottom that has the uh, slope of a roller coaster, because that's called neutral slope, and you have a certain number that you can't go above, which if a vehicle is standing still on a certain part of the track, it won't move anymore. But if it's moving, it'll continue to move. That's called neutral slope. It's something like .038 uh, coefficient. And so that meant... I gotta use trigonometry, and I got an, and I got an F in the tenth grade in geometry. (laughs) Really, the teacher gave me an F and a pass, and the other students were upset, and they said, "Well, you can't do that. You've got to take it over." And I remember this teacher, Mr. Gordy, looked and he says, "I don't want to see Gur ever again." (laughs) True story. So I found out uh, I need trig. And the other thing was you can get these little engineering books, and it's got a bunch of charts and stuff. And it's only a circle, a triangle, and a bunch of Latin goofy names, sines, cosines, cosecants, all that stuff. Don't memorize it. Just don't lose the book. <laughs> 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 so, uh, yeah, uh, it, it's true. I taught myself trig in 15 minutes. And Which means, uh, had I stayed in high school and did a good job, I would, I would have taken uh, a whole semester to learn something that would have taken 15 minutes. <laughs> stay in school, then, kids. Yeah, 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 stay in Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, ma- mathematics is a tremendous tool only if you have something to do at that moment. Otherwise, it's ridiculous. Thank <laughs> um, <laughs> 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 quick little aside. I had a guy knock at my door last week. Uh, he had a newspaper from an Orange County paper with a story about me, and it talked about this, this subject. And he says, uh, I'm a math teacher from the city of Anaheim, um, and uh, have you got a few minutes? Um, can you help me do anything to inspire my students to learn math? And I said, are you serious? Well, come in and sit in my backyard. I'll, I got some opinions. So I gave him a <laughs> bunch of opinions <laughs> about, well, I do feel sorry for you because you have a subject that the state mandates, and it's absolutely boring and useless, and I don't know how, what you're going to do with these kids. But why don't you give the kids a problem to solve and then suddenly suggest, oh, I have a tool for you. If maybe on one thing, it's geometry. Another thing, it might be trig. Or I don't know it might be algebra. Oh, this little... Mathematic trick you could use it to solve your problem with. Then a kid might then want math to do something. It's like, how many kids know compound interest, credit cards, all that kind of stuff? Oh, use math for a tool. See, otherwise it's it's a boring subject. Yeah. Anyway, a long winded answer. What's your next question?
1: So. uh So you used math that you taught yourself in 15 minutes, and Walt must have said, wow, this guy really must know what he's doing. You were a high school. You took some drafting classes in high school. You take this tangled mess of cables and wires and track, and you, you straighten them out, and you make this, this Matterhorn come to be. And Walt must have said, well, you did a good job of untangling that mess of wires. Oh, by the way, Bob, can you help us out with these audio-animatronic figures? I think a lot of people don't realize your, literally your hands in the, the creating the current sort of system of audio-animatronics. Tell us about your work on President Lincoln.
0: Well, I I, I was comfortable working with... Uh, a, is this mic still on? Yeah. Okay. Hello. it's that echo on? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it's working, working. Okay. All right. um, we were doing four big projects for New York World's Fair, and I was spending all, virtually all of my time on the Ford Magic Skyway, uh, for the Ford Motor Company and then I was also working on the um uh, general general Lucky carousel progress which animated uh had going to have animated uh humans so we kind of took a look at the various ways to animate them and uh um, some of the ideas I had we started to build it and it just absolutely didn't work so we stopped and we tried to do it another way but anyway I I did have a, a team of drafters and we did start doing the animation for the General Electric Carousel of Progress. Of course, the shop had been doing the cavemen, which were a kind of a rudimentary type of animation. At the same time, uh, Walt wanted me to get started on some of the uh, uh, moving show action equipment for a Small World. And then while doing all of that, Walt suddenly calls my boss, Roger Brogy Sr., and myself over the studio and says, I want you to look at this animated link, and uh, People have been working on it, and it doesn't work. And uh, I want you to make it work. And I want twice as many moves, and I want it to to weigh half as much. And it was like, it was futile, as you now know, to tell Walt, I don't do humans. (laughs) But Walt was quite, uh, quite upset, because I did find out later that the night before, he was showing this to a lady friend of his. And uh, the, much of the mechanical stuff was behind a wall, and there were guys there to try to help the figure out of his chair because the hydraulics weren't working that well. And we used red hydraulic fluid, and a line burst in the, in the chest, and it came out of the white shirt. And this woman was absolutely furious. Well, Walt, well, you're going to do a show, and you're going to reenact the killing of Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> so, you got to visualize uh, Wall was very disappointed because this was a secret job that had been going on for quite a while. So, anyway... Uh, I took the job, and I immediately had to learn about uh, human uh, anatomy, where the joints are, what are the uh, extent of motions and all that sort of stuff. I watched some movies with uh, 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 Raymond Massey in it, and I was sitting there looking at that one, and I thought, oh, one of the actions I forgot to put in was a, was a shoulder shrug. So um, I used a technique of uh, automobile design, uh, and, uh, How many mechanics out here know a McPherson front suspension on a vehicle? Aha, see you guys. I inverted it upside down, and that's a Lincoln shrug shrug mechanism. Same thing, yeah. What you can see in the Walt Disney Museum, that torso of the very first Lincoln is in the Walt Disney Family Museum. That was our very first one. But that job, I only had 90 days start to finish to do the entire thing. But again... Guys would look at animation and see it a certain way. I looked at it as an airplane fuselage of small tubes, little tiny bearings that we could uh, install in a certain way. So it's like you look at it a human, but from your previous knowledge and understanding of mechanical stuff, airplanes and things, you could see the President of the United States is nothing but, a, uh, but an airplane fuselage. Um, well, you know, it, it frees up your thinking. You see things entirely uh, different. That's just, uh, you know, one example of that kind of a technique. So that job, uh, I was so busy on the Ford thing, I didn't really catch up with that figure till it was uh, done, and because uh, everybody else is doing all the body shells, all the clothing, all the uh, electrical control lines, all the hydraulics, uh, pneumatics, a tremendous amount of work uh, on Lincoln. But uh, the part that I did was all the mechanical motion and the machine under the floor that made him get up out of his chair.
1: So the kid that's interested in airplanes ends up working on cars and, and building roller coasters and vehicles and monorails and trains, and you're, you're creating the president in, in human form. I think a lot of people also don't realize that you also were now brought into work on boats as well, and Small World was your first boat project. And again, you found a simple solution to, to propel the boat forward.
0: Well, I didn't come up with a solution to uh, propel the boat. That was aero development, because uh, the boat has a little uh, trough, and they had water, and they had water pumps that would pick up water in one spot and uh, push it forward in the other. And you go to Disneyland, Small World still is driven the same way. It has two little wheels uh, underneath the boat riding in a trough, which the water kind of traps it and acts like a you know, a pusher that pushes it through the water. Boats are very, very simple. They, uh, they move very easily. They don't take a lot of horsepower, and you can get really high uh, theoretical ride capacity. So the small world boat, uh, we modified a little bit, and that later became the uh, pirate ride boat. And, of course, since then, uh, all those type of boats uh, all you know came from that original, uh, a very simple design.
1: Going forward, you obviously worked very closely with Walt, and not speaking maybe specifically about attractions and pavilions, but you knew... Uh, because of the time period we're talking about, about his intentions for Epcot Center, what Epcot was supposed to be, what did you kind of see as Walt's overriding vision for Epcot and then obviously different from maybe what we have today? You
0: would ask a sensitive question. <laughs> I'm going to move on. To, um, <laughs> uh, no, seriously, um, there was a book written uh, maybe 10 years ago all about... Uh, Epcot is a very thorough book. Um, can't remember the author's name. Has anybody read the book that I can't think of the name of? Oh, you got a lot of research to dig out if you want to know about Epcot. But after Walt died, there was no action on uh Epcot for uh up until about 1972. And uh the company restarted uh, work on Epcot and we had a Group which we called uh, the Wednesday Morning Club. There was ten of us on it. Marty Scar was the chair of it, and uh, Albertino was one of our uh, animators on it. And we we tried to figure out what did Walt have in mind, and we never could quite get that thing figured out. So the design changed over a period of time more into a um, an industrial uh, technological park demonstration sort of a thing rather than a place that people would have a sabbatical and invent new things and showcase how things would be done, because that was going to be technically quite difficult to have, you know, people actually live and have to vote and all these kind of things when we really we wanted to have a demonstration park. Uh, and, of course, you had to sell it to a sponsor, so we had to keep shifting the design until we could get sponsors that could understand the idea. So, and, and you but anyway, this, this guy wrote the book, and... Um, it's called the search for something. The quest for community? Oh, yes. The, yeah, yeah the, uh, the, uh, um, the search of the quest for community, something like that. If you're really interested, that guy was so thorough, he went around and he talked to everybody that was still living that ever worked on Epcot. And he will explain completely how the ideas changed and why the Epcot that was built was not the Epcot that Walt wanted.
1: Well, let me ask you don't, about...
0: Don't, don't quote me, Walt, please. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You did have a hand in Epcot, and you mentioned, obviously, how important corporate sponsorships were to Epcot coming to be. And you had a hand in securing Epcot's, Epcot Centers, sorry, very first corporate sponsor.
0: How did you find that story? Where where have you been? You you, you know, these podcast people, they steal from each other, I think. (laughs) That's that's what it is. No, we were looking for uh, this uh, sponsor. We had this big sponsor program, and because we'd done a lot of work with the Ford Motor Company, Marty Scar had uh, these uh, presentation boxes of all the material uh, ready to present to the Ford Motor Company. Because internally, our legal department said, "There's our there's our best marketing chance." Meantime, having graduated from Art Center College in Pasadena, and they had just dedicated a new college. I was just there. Uh, the new one in Pasadena, and I just happened to meet through a, an old friend, uh, the vice president of General Motors, and I said, uh, Bill uh, Mitchell, have you ever heard of an Epcot? He's a curious guy. I told, I, so that was the opener. Oh, well, I'll tell you about Epcot then. So I did, but what I didn't know, he was looking for a place to put uh, the replacement for the uh, General Motors Motorama that they used to do back in the uh, uh, 50s uh, up to the early, like early 60s. So there was a need of two companies, and it came together sort of like that, off the wall. And um, uh, so I went to Marty, and I said, send the books to General Motors. Bob, you don't understand. It's Ford. No, send it to General Motors. Send it over to Bill Mitchell. He's vice president of General Motors. He's waiting for you. And that's all it took, just one of those quick-passing things. So we launched General Motors. As soon as General Motors launched, everybody else signed, just like that.
1: Amazing, and of course now, all well, corporate sponsorship is always so important from the very beginning of the opening of Disneyland. Um, you worked on so many projects. We're unfortunately limited by the amount of time because I could ask you about so much. What are the things that? Let me ask you this: What was the last thing you worked on in Disney? Because you had multiple careers afterwards as well, working on for some other park, King Kong again, Las Vegas, things like that. But what was the last project you worked on for Disney? And what, and I know it's like picking a favorite child, but what is the one maybe that you're most proud of or want to be most remembered for? Oh,
0: Those are two questions. You're supposed to give them one at a time. <laughs>
1: Listen, I went to law school. And you just, you know, barrage you with questions.
0: He said he was a lawyer. Okay, I got it. Yeah. Don't hold it against me, please. Yeah, try it. covering a lawyer. I always try to confuse the witness with multiple questions. Yeah, right. <laughs> the,
1: uh, what was the question? I don't know. I'm looking around and waiting for the red light to go off. So first things first, tell me what the no, last the project la- was.
0: The last thing I did was uh, for Tokyo Disney Seas, the Little Mermaid Theater, which everybody seems to think is one of the most spectacular shows that Disney's ever tackled, it had a large piece of what we call show action equipment which is the ursula figure anybody been to tokyo disney seas anybody seen the little mermaid what did you like that show yeah right at the end of the show ursula the great big ugly woman comes out of the comes out of the ceiling and goes out over the audience and it's a great big thing but the machine that runs it is a horrendous sized machine which Disney's own Walt Disney Imagineering was scared to do, and they didn't want to do it, so they, they sent it out to outside engineering, and of course it came to my lap, as GER Design Incorporated, so I did the preliminary design, and then um, it went down to Walt Disney Imagineering. They they did the engineering. It was uh, Drawings were faulty. There was a lot of things wrong with it, and then Garner Holt Company in San Bernardino got it, and uh, they managed to fix it all. They shipped it, and the thing runs absolutely beautiful, so I was like, well, that was the last thing I helped Disney with, was the biggest piece of show action equipment that was the spookiest thing that they were scared of, and I thought, fine, that's just a normal job that we normally do. <laughs> and then my favorite, that's an unfair question because um, you got 250 grandchildren, pick out one. <laughs> yeah, you just try that, and you got 249 enemies right there. <laughs> it won't work. Um, but I always get this question, but I, I have to say uh The judgment is uh the how how big is walt disney 's twinkle in his eye when he 's showing it to his friends, and uh, the Lincoln figure and the first monorail are the two that uh based upon that criteria uh were his favorites so they uh, they pretty much became my favorites of, if you 'd say what did we accomplish and did we do something in a time frame way ahead of anybody else uh well okay i got a I got a Bigger eyebrow raise out of Walt on the monorail and the uh, Lincoln.
1: And, and I want to give people in the audience a chance to ask you questions, but I, I want to just ask you one question, too, that I'm sure you get asked all the time. No, you said you want them to ask the question. <laughs> all right, somebody has to ask a question about working with Walt. No, go, go ahead. Then... All right, no. Yeah. All right, for your last question. It's going to be a multi-part, Bob, just so you know. It's my la- the only... He's going
0: to get five of them in on, on one. All right, go. It's
1: what I do. <laughs> I want to talk about working with Walt, if I can, so on a personal level. Um, when, you, when you started as a, really a kid coming to work for Disney, uh, it obviously wasn't, you know, Walt Disney wasn't as big of a figure as he was years later. What was it like for you coming in and meeting Walt for the first time? And then years later, when Walt passes, what was that like for you both personally and professionally?
0: Well, working for Walt, when you first meet Walt, uh, you're just sort of in a conversation. There's no formalities. You're just all of a sudden everybody's working on something, and then one of the guys is uh, we call him Walt. I mean, it's very it's very simple. You know, it's hard to believe, but that's 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 the way it was. Uh, there's sort of an automatic thing that uh, that people caught on to very very quick. That besides you know being a, a People only use their first names. That's why I tell some of you, so don't you ever try to call me Mr. because I'm Bob. Uh, same way with Walt. Walt would see somebody coming down a hallway, and it might be a new employee, and the new employee is terrified. What do I do? Duck in a door? What, what do I do? Turn around or something? And there was only two things that would happen. Uh, the guy would not say anything to Walt, and Walt would wait about two feet, and they'd turn around, snap at the guy, and he says, What's the matter? Aren't we talking? You know, which, re- which really scared him. And then he'd say, "I'm Walt. What's your name?" Uh, and and that's the way it was. People caught on to that immediately. The other thing was that while yes, uh, to some people Walt was really a god, uh, and I, I could see him scare uh, captains of industry when they when they got too close, and their bottom lip would start to quiver talking to him. So uh, and then Walt did everything to try to calm people down, because while some people treat him like a god. Walt has to get the job done working with people and and you can't have any of this this adulation get in the way. So people caught on uh, automatically. So when you'd be with Walt someplace, whether it's a meeting or just in passing or something like that, you were always very aware that Walt needs your comments and he needs your feedback and uh, your ideas and he has to listen to those and don't get this uh, adulation caught in the middle. Uh, if, you, if you can kind of understand that, a lot of people, they, when you answer this question, they still can't believe it. That, is it like that? Because other companies and other, uh, other presidents in the Disney company um, were not quite this open with, uh, with the people that had to do the work.
1: You felt like you were working with Walt as opposed to maybe for Walt.
0: Oh, yeah. People would say, what's it like to work for uh, Walt Disney? Well, companies normally have layers of vice presidents and managers and project coordinators and all that sort of stuff. In those days, we didn't. It was Walt and everybody, which meant Walt talked direct to anybody working on something and never went through anybody. Uh, There's a few people still today that work that way. I did a job for Steven Spielberg. I did one for uh, Steve Wynn in Las Vegas. Same way, they, they, those guys talk only the people doing the work and nobody in the middle. And that was Walt's, uh, that, that was his methodology that absolutely worked perfect. So that meant uh, you were totally at ease with him at all times within, within reason.
1: So I, I have to assume, and again, for many of the other people that I've spoken to that have worked with him like that, his passing was more than just losing a boss. It was a very personal thing for, for I, I assume, you as well.
0: Yeah, I, I do have to de- defer an answer.
1: And I will Let move on to the audience. How's that? Does anybody have a question before I walk down? This beautiful young lady right here. Hi, young lady. What's your name and where are you? No, don't, don't, no, no. no, no, no. <laughs> See, she cheated. I, I,
0: I know her. Yeah. I'll come back. <laughs> Walper
3: and the spaceship. David Walper, we just lost him. And
0: David, she's talking about David Walper. Okay. Yeah. All right, I'll answer her question. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh, thank you, sir. Oh, <laughs> as you can tell, Tink is a plant.
2: <laughs>
0: oh no, uh, some of you are familiar with David Walper, who was quite an award-winning uh, movie producer. But he was given the job to do the opening closing ceremonies in the 1984 uh, Olympics in uh, Los Angeles. Um, And uh, I wound up doing the job for the uh, closing ceremonies, which was a flying saucer. Anybody here remember the flying saucer from, uh, whoa, yes. Are you that old that you can remember? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, this is a big 50-foot flying saucer, and we had to test it uh, out at uh, Hughes Airport in the afternoon. Like about 100 people show up. David Walper shows up. And the uh, vehicle had a structural collapse on its first test flight underneath this big helicopter. It didn't really damage anything, but he gave us a, a, a 24 hours to fix it. And uh, as we agreed to fix it and come back tomorrow, David Walper looked at me r- real close, and he said, I have your $50,000 progress check in my pocket, and I'm not giving it to you. You come back here tomorrow, and you fly it perfectly, and I'll give you the $50,000. But Walper was also a kind of a guy that he would trust that anybody that's doing something for him knows exactly what they're doing, and they will figure it out somehow. And that's how he got all that work done. And if you ever remember the opening ceremonies, you know, what was it, 100 pianos, 76 pianos? What was it? An incredible thing, a man flying in space and balloons and everything. Uh, a jaw-dropping thing, and that guy could—he handed a job that was outside his bailiwick because he's a movie guy—and he could get a whole bunch of people to take his uh, crazy idea and say, "Well, we just go do it," like that. Amazing man. Anybody else?
3: Can you uh, tell us about any um, projects that you may have worked on and were excited about, but for whatever reason didn't make it into the park?
0: I get that question a lot. Oddly enough, there were very, very few projects that we would start working on that uh, got stopped or or didn't go. Usually an idea, if it was really uh, completely stupid, uh, didn't go very far. Because we really... (laughs) We, we really didn't waste a lot of time uh, trying to nurse a project that was, was kind of uh, hopeless. Uh, that's not to say that there were some jobs that uh, seemed to take a long time and, but never got up to a serious uh, stage. Uh, it seemed it went back to the idea of Walt. Walt knew uh, just about how far to push people, how far to push uh, technology uh, so that you could actually do it. Uh, Sometimes companies will say, well, we have to compete, we have to be technologically far out, and you can be so far out you can't do it, and then you wasted all that time and money and frustrate everybody and everybody got mad and some of them quit and all that stuff. Disney didn't suffer that because there was some intelligence and good judgment launching stuff that ultimately would be an attraction at Disneyland. So basically, I don't have any projects that I could tell you about that uh, were bomb outs, Far down the line.
4: Did you just work on Disneyland or anything in Disney World?
0: Well, I worked on uh, both parks, yes. Um, uh, A lot more, of course, in the early days at uh, Disneyland, but uh, for Walt Disney World, uh, yes, I designed the first monorail, you know, the Mark IV monorail system, which was a very long-term job. Uh, did the Star Jets there? I worked uh, some of the designs for the uh, Main Street vehicles, excursion train uh, redos, just like we did at uh, Disneyland. Um, a couple other things, I forget exact, exactly quite what they were, but it was not to the extent of uh, Disneyland.
4: Why can Disney make a monorail, but Seattle can't? <laughs>
0: Well, that's a pretty straightforward. And if you if you know your history, first off, you had a Walt Disney with a dream, with an idea of monorail in his mind, right from the first sketch which you saw in the movie. Seattle is a civilized democracy with with a city council and everything, and they had put together all the money for their World's Fair, and of course, with the World's Fair, you you do build some civil infrastructure that you would not normally uh, do other than having a fair or an exposition. And, of course, the uh, the Seattle Exposition, 1962, um, you, you got a space needle and you got a monorail, but you got it literally for free because it got dragged along only because uh, of an ex- exposition. Later on, the um, arguments pro and con monorail have uh, have turned very, very political, uh, I sort of read it from afar in which you know, some of it's going to happen and then it's not going to happen. It's sort of like uh, democracy is really great because everybody gets their two cents in for so long that it becomes so expensive that it, it dies a natural death.
2: What's your most challenging um, project?
0: Hmm, challenging. I, I, they all worked. <laughs> you know, where did you come from? That's the first time I ever got that question. Yeah, the most challenging problem. Um I would, I would probably have to say the sinking ship in Las Vegas, but this is a Disney meeting. Do I get to talk about something that's not Disney? In this, okay, okay, well, you asked the question. You got a minute and a half. A minute and a half, okay. <laughs> How many people here have been to Las Vegas, went to Treasure Island Hotel, and uh, saw the Sinking Ship show? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. A guy comes up to me and he says, I want to sink a ship on Las Vegas Boulevard. Uh, It can't be behind a curtain, and so uh, we can't have a show that doesn't work. So you're going to design something that's underwater, and it's uh, never going to fail, right? (laughs) That's a challenge. Turned out... (coughs) But it was Steve Wynn. If you know anything about Steve Wynn, it was kind of the mogul of Las Vegas. He had an idea, build a hotel with a volcano. How do you top a volcano? Oh, you have two uh, ships getting a fight, and then one of them catches on fire and sinks out of sight right on a public sidewalk. Totally normal job. <laughs> but that job was uh, had a lot of tricky stuff that you had to think about because it had all these negative things you don't want to do Part we into the job, I found out there were several large companies turned him down. I said, "Don't do that. That is way too risky." Uh, but uh, to me, it wasn't. It wasn't that risky, but it was a, a very, very big challenge. And the job, when we built it, it worked very smooth. We had no difficulties, whatever, in all the testing and adjusting. And the, and that sucker, I don't think the last time I knew it, it sank twenty-two thousand times and came back up every time. <laughs>
1: One of my biggest challenges was trying to encapsulate an incredible career into just a couple of questions to ask you um, because I know I think I, I'm going to speak for everybody here. We're I, thought so- were, I thought you were done. I am done. This is, I'm wrapping up, Bob. Come on, I've been practicing this all night. Um, we are so... What, 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 what is, am I in a witness stand and it's on redirect again? You know, I, counselor. Counselor. <laughs> My dad paid for three years of law school when I got to interview Bob Gurr. We are so appreciative of what you've done and the joy that your work has given to generations of not just Disney fans, but theme park fans around the world. And you're so much of an inspiration with your story and how you got to do what you do. And you dreamt it, and you did it, and you made it happen. And we're also very grateful for the fact that you come out to these events and you spend the time and talk to us Disney fans in this type of environment and one on one and I speak for myself and hopefully everybody else here how grateful we really are Uh, your Disney Legend Award in in 2004 was certainly very very well deserved it has been an honor thank you that's going to do it for this week's show thanks so much for taking the time and tuning in this and every week thanks also go out to Don Morin the founder of the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet. everybody who was in attendance and came by or who watched the event in the box and of course to my very very special guest Disney Imagineer and legend Mr. Bob Gurr to comment on this week's episode or my conversation with Bob come by and visit the show notes over at wdwradio.com there you'll also find discussion forums, photo galleries, new videos, the shop where you can purchase signed copies of my Walt Disney World trivia books and audio guides to Walt Disney World. You'll also find photo galleries. Download the free WDW Radio iPhone app and interact and connect with me and the show through Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and so much more. If you like this episode or if you're a new listener, Please come by and browse our entire archive of older episodes at wdwradio.com or via iTunes. Just a quick reminder about some upcoming events starting next Saturday, August 28th from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Disney Fairytale Weddings and Honeymoons is having an open house over at Frank's Studio in the Disney Wedding Pavilion located right by the Grand Floridian Resort. I'm going to be there. I'll actually be broadcasting live over at wdwradiolive.com. So if you can't make it to Walt Disney World for the event, you can attend it virtually on the site where you can watch and chat with me and cast members from the Disney Fairytale Wedding and Honeymoon staff. For more information and links to the Facebook event pages for the uh, Disney Fairytale Weddings Open House, as well as the WDW Radio Live chat, you can go and visit DisneyMeets.com. There you'll find out not only about this event, but um, upcoming Meets of the Month in Walt Disney World and other special events. Speaking of which, August's Meet of the Month is not going to be at the open house, but it is going to be the next day, Sunday, August 29th, starting at 11 a.m. We're going to meet at Epcot in the Land Pavilion downstairs at the Sunshine Seasons Food Fair. We're going to start at 11. We'll probably be there for a few hours, so please feel free to come by, stay, even grab some lunch with us. Again, I ask you to please RSVP on the Facebook event page, which you can link to right from DisneyMeats.com. Also, don't forget, if you're going to be out in California for Destination D, I will be out there as well. I'll be holding some meats out there during the event. I'll also be having a special private World of Color dessert party on Thursday night, September 23rd, starting around 7.15 or so. We have a reserved viewing area for the World of Color Then we're going to move over to the Golden Vine Winery for an upstairs terrace dessert party. Tickets are just $29, but if you book part of the package that we have with Mouse Fan Travel that has discounted group rates at the Disneyland Hotel, it's just $19 per person. Again, links to all this right over at DisneyMeets.com. In October, don't forget our walkabout during the Food and Wine Festival. That's going to be Friday, October 1st. Congaloosh with the Adventures Club cast private dinner and show on the Indiana Jones stage and tours with me and Jim Corcus is from October 8th through the 11th and of course the WDW Radio Cruise on the Disney Dream is February 27th 2011. You still have time to get questions in if you have any questions about our cruise, the Disney Dream or cruising on the Disney Cruise Line in general. I do have a blog post up where you can post your questions in the comments section. We're going to answer those on an upcoming show. We'll also probably do a WDW Radio live broadcast and chat to let you ask some more as well don't forget I want you guys to be as much a part of the show as you'd like to be so if you have a question that you want me to answer on the air you can email me at lou at wdwradio.com if you want a chance to play listener Factor fiction where I may call you up and ask you 10 trivia questions about Walt Disney World for a chance to win some prizes you can email me at that same address also include your phone number Or if you want to be heard on the air, you can call in anytime to the toll-free voicemail line at 888-703-2171. Thanks, as always, to my partners and sponsors, including Mouse Fan Travel and All-Star Vacation Homes. Don't forget you can come by and visit celebrationspress.com, where you can subscribe, order back issues, or find out how you can contribute to Celebrations Magazine. There is lots more to come, I promise you, as I am working on a lot of different projects, including... Finishing up the Liberty Square Audio Guide to Walt Disney World I will have a tentative release date Coming very very soon In the meantime If you want to order copies of the Audio Guide to Walt Disney World On CD I have a special going on this week only If you want to purchase Individual Audio Guides to Walt Disney World Or the Main Street Adventureland And Fantasyland 3 pack On CD Use the coupon code HEAVY H-E-A-V-Y When you check out and you'll save 15% on your entire order. Anyway, that is going to do it for this week's show. Thank you again for taking the time and tuning in. And as always, if you like the show, all I ask is that you please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening to the show. If you're on Facebook, share the link to this week's show and the interview with Bob Gurr on Facebook. And if you like the show and the free WDW Radio iPhone app, please come by and review one or both over on iTunes and of course my friends more than anything I want you to not only have a great week this week but to pursue your passion and follow your dream and always always keep moving forward thanks again for listening see ya hi Lou this is Jenna from Seattle
2: Washington I just saw you at the Pacific Northwest Mass Meet in Linwood this last weekend. Um, I wanted to call and say that I enjoyed seeing you again. You did a wonderful job interviewing the amazing Bob Gurr. That was such a great event, and that interview was definitely the highlight. I also wanted to thank you for all of your hard work with the podcast, the website, audio tour CDs, books, just everything. Ever since I met you at the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet last year, I've been hooked on all things WDW Radio. Your passion and excitement for Disney is evident. And as a huge Disney fan myself, I truly appreciate having WDW Radio as a resource. So thanks again. Keep up the great work. And hopefully I'll get to see you sometime in one of the Disney parks. Hi, Lou.
4: Hi, Lou. This is Bill from Collegeville. I am here experiencing what I consider one of the Hidden Gems in World Showcase, we deliberately made our dinner reservation so that we would come out of dinner after Illuminations, and my family and I love the walk back through World Showcase to the parking lot after everything's done. There's hardly anybody here, and it's very nice. So uh, we are having a wonderful time here, and there's one thing left that I would like you to allow me to do, and that is to blow out the torch here in World Showcase. Bye, Lou.
2: Hi, Lou. My name is Tim Smith. I'm GM and in trans on the forums. I just listened to your uh, segment on and with your two other uh, guests that you had on there. I uh, called Disney Reservations to make a uh, reservation when I was going in September. And a little additional information is, if you use the annual pass program, the premium annual pass program, uh, you cannot book a uh, reservation 14 days prior to either using it or getting there. So I thought that was some additional information you might need. Um, But, but that's only for the premium annual pass program. So I just thought I'd pass that on to you. You're doing a good job, and Keep it up. Thank you.
4: Hi, it's Renee from Fort Collins, and I was just giving you a call because T minus four days till I start driving, and T minus ten until I check in to the college program at Walt Disney World. So I'm super excited about being down there, and just wanted to say again thank you for your message of keep moving forward and following your dreams because it really helped me embrace the idea that I could go and do this because it's something I've always wanted to do. So. Yay! Ten days, and I'll be an official cast member at the Walt Disney World Resort. Um, Thanks for everything you do, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Well, hey there, Lou. It's Doug from the greater Northeast. And uh, although I haven't been to Disney recently, I did spend some time at a theme park here in the Northeast. Yes, Hershey Park is known for its chocolate, and I couldn't help but notice the other day how vanilla it really was. I'm not saying we didn't have fun riding the roller coasters and checking out some of the attractions, but it was just amazing standing in the queue, especially for the one roller coaster called the Comet. It was basically just a lot of bars and a giant park and fans that blowed down on you. I mean, I guess it did the job and kept you cool, but just I have a great feeling that there will never be a podcast or, as the case is, multiple podcasts about Hershey Park the way that there is about Walt Disney World and all of the other Disney parks around the world. We had a fun time, but I gotta admit, it really wet my appetite for our upcoming Marathon weekend trip in January. Anyway, thanks so much for your great show and we'll see ya.
2: Hi Lou, this is Kenny from Illinois and I just wanted to let you and every other Disney enthusiast that has a, has a new library, a Disney library. I just received my new Walt Disney uh, Imagineering, a behind-the-dreams look at making more of a real, a magic real. And it's by the Imagineers. It's got a forward by Robert Iger and J. M- J. Rolulo, and an introduction by Marty Scholar, Scholar and then an afterward by John Lasseter. And like I say, I just received it, but in just leafing through it, It is one of those books that you have to have. It is incredible. The artwork, the photography, even little collectibles-like things inside it, it's just one of those books that you just can't turn down. And I'm excited about reading it, and I know everyone else that uh, has got a chance to look at it will be just as excited as I am. So uh, I appreciate your show. I listen to you every week. I think you're awesome. Keep up the great work, and uh, see ya.